See, you know, I love that our prayers aren't always scripted. In fact, rarely are, because I really appreciate that. Even new to me, I love that. Thank you for praying that. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. morning. Well, does anyone else find it hard to believe that Labor Day weekend is next weekend? Wow. That is absolutely crazy. And among other things, um, this is a time of year when people head back to school, and there will be people heading off to college for the first time. If that's you, if you're heading off as a freshman to college, um, here's some advice, unsolicited, that I'd love to give you. We're actually going to put it up on the screens. Don't bring a Sunday school understanding of God to college. It can really get in trouble. I've seen bad things happen when people bring a Sunday school understanding of God into college. As you make that transition from teen to young adults and you have enough pop cans that you throw up, hit you on the head, um, when that happens, and also just as you get older, even the mechanics of your, your brain are changing. And you're going to be able to comprehend things on a different level than you've ever, ever been able to compliment, comprehend them before. And there are going to be people who make a very convincing case, at least it'll sound convincing, that the faith that you grew up with should be left behind that an enlightened mind will leave all of that uh, back in Sunday school. In fact, there's going to be people, it's very, very likely, if they haven't already, that are going to tell you that you need to choose between science and Scripture. That you need to choose between science and Scripture. And so the question I want to actually wrestle with today is this, and there's a place to write it down in your notes. Does the pursuit of an Ivy League intellect require a choice between science and Scripture? Is it that cut and dry that if you want to go with an Ivy League intellect, you have to leave Scripture behind? There are those who believe and teach that you've got to choose between the two. Here's a quote. This quote comes from an ancient form of communication that we used to call magazines. You can find some of these um, in archive in museums that we used to call libraries. Um, so here's a quote from one of those ancient documents called Time Magazine. And it said this, Charles Darwin... He didn't set out to murder God, as he once put it, but he, what, did. There will be people that will try to convince you of that. There will be those who say you've got to choose between science and Scripture. You have to choose between Darwin and faith. Well, the Scriptures do take a different position on this, um, at least then you have to choose between the two. If you have Psalm or your Bibles, let's open up to Psalm 19. We're going to take a look at the first two verses of this now, and then we'll circle back to it at the end. Here's what the scripture says. This is very different than what Time Magazine said. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are, nor are there words where the voice is not, or whose voice is not heard. All right, well, I recently read a book. In preparation for this series, I read a bunch of books. And one of them was a book by a man named Richard Dawkins. It's a book called The Greatest Show on Earth. He would disagree very strongly with what the Scripture says that we just read, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. And if you were a freshman in his class, you might come away thinking, you know what, he's right and the Scripture is wrong because he'd offer a whole lot of evidence. Here's just some of the things that he offers in his book. And again, this is just a quick survey here. He says that there's plate tectonics, tree rings, carbon clocks, and earth strata that if you look them together, they sync up. And they point to an earth that's 4.6 billion years old. He also would say, you know, people criticize the fossil record and they say there's missing links. He would say missing links. What missing links? Everything is exactly where you'd expect to find it. 
in the order that you'd expect to find it and seems to reflect a progression in development. Um, he would also say there are a whole lot of common features and surprising mechanics that really support my theory. Common features, if you look at the animals that are supposed to be related to one another, you look at their skeletons, you look at their makeup, it looks like they're related to one another. And there's also surprising mechanics. He would say, you've got a tailbone. Why would you have a tailbone if you didn't have a tail? He would also say things like this. Why would a loving creator create fangs and claws and really mean wasps? There's a special kind of wasp that stuns its prey and then devours it alive. Why would a loving God do that? Why would he not create a more loving world? And as Darwin, Darwin's, uh, Dawkins makes his case, he reminds us we've all seen examples of evolution with our own eyes. He says this, if human breeders can transform a wolf into a Pekingese, a wild cabbage into a cauliflower in just a few centuries or millennia, well, then why shouldn't the non-random survival of wild animals and plants do the same thing over millions of years? Now, I just gave a real quick overview. If he took you into depth in each of these things, you could come away thinking, he's right. Scripture's wrong. I have to choose to go with my intellect. I have to not go with faith. And you might say, I'm all in. You're right. My Sunday school understanding of Scriptures was wrong. But how many of you know that the case that Dawkins makes isn't as simple as he makes it. It's not that simple. It's not as simple as a choice between faith and facts. In fact, I'd encourage you to write this down in your notes. The theory of evolution, let's focus in on that one here because we were talking about, we started by talking about uh, the series, we started talking about Genesis 1.1. Theory of evolution requires more faith than people realize. Now, I want to be clear, even as I put this on the screen, I want to be clear where I'm going today. My, my goal is not to convince you that the theory of evolution is wrong. In fact, we're gonna, next week we're going to talk, our, our, our teaching is called Theories of Evolution. And we're going to take a look at a couple different possibilities. I also recommend in your notes a book that was recommended to me um, by, uh, by Jade over there. The, um, the book is called The Lost World of Genesis 1. It's a book that presents a very interesting case for how evolution and scripture can both be true. So my point here, don't read between the lines. I'm not trying to either endorse or ridicule evolution right now. The point that I'm trying to make today is the point that we started with, that science and scripture are compatible. And you don't have to choose between the two. I want to raise the point that there are intelligent, well-educated, truth-seeking men and women who have raised some significant questions regarding Darwin's theory. And if you've never ex uh, explored these questions before, a good combination of books would be to read the Genesis, the Lost World of Genesis 1, but also the Lee Strobel book that I put in your notes too. Um, it'd be a good combination of books. Lee Strobel was a former atheist who came to faith. He converted to Christianity. He wrote a book called The Case for a Creator. Uh, he writes this in his book. He says, as a high school and university student studying evolution, I was never even told that there were credible scientists who harbored significant skepticism towards Darwinian theory. I had been under the impression that it was only know-nothing pastors who objected to the evolution on the grounds that it contradicted the Bible's claims. I wasn't aware that according to Peter Bowler, substantive scientific critiques of natural selection started so early that by 1900, quote, its opponents were convinced it would never recover. Now, there are a whole lot of reasons why people have some questions that they've raised about Darwin's theories. There are a whole lot of reasons. Let's focus on one right now, and here it is. Simple life is an oxymoron. If you've studied this stuff, 
Simple life is an oxymoron. Here's why this matters. Darwin's entire theory rests on the belief that there was simple life that evolved into more complex and more diverse life. So if you can't come up with a theory of simple life, there's a question here, a big question. All right, well, I want to present to you there is no such thing as simple life. And out of all the reading I've done, a lot of reading, out of all the reading I've done, the biggest are-you-kidding-me moment came in Richard Dawkins' book. Um, it came on page 419. I can even point to the, to the page. Page 419. For 418 pages, Richard Dawkins had, making the case, had been making the case that his case was airtight. So for 418 pages, he's saying, you're a moron if you don't believe me in everything I say, right? For 418 pages. And then... 419, right before he wraps up his book, he writes this. And you can look it up. I'll bring my book next week if you want. I can show you. This is not me taking him out of context. This is not me changing or twisting his words. This is what he says about the origin of life. He says, and I quote, we have no evidence about what the first step in making life was, but we do know that the kind of step it must have been. It must have been whatever it took to get natural selection started. Let me read that again. We have no evidence about what the first step in making life was, but we do know the kind of step it must have been. It must have been whatever it took to get natural selection started. Show of hands. Show of hands. How many of you think that doesn't sound very scientific? <laughs> it's faith. Doesn't sound, all right, again, I'm not making up. This is his, his answer. And then he doubles down again a few pages later. These are his own words. He says this as he's talking about the origin of life. Before leaving the subject, however, I must repeat the warning I've given in earlier books. We don't actually need a plausible theory of the origin of life. In fact, we should move towards positively expecting that no plausible theory of the origin of life exists. These aren't my words. These are his words. And if I hadn't drained a couple highlighters getting to page 14, 419, I would have asked for my money back because this is significant. It's significant because he wasn't approaching this um, consciously, philosophically. He was presenting this as all of the science, all of the hard science lines up with me. And you can't disagree with hard science. And he not only admits there's no widely accepted scientific theory for how life began, he says we should expect that any theory that explains how life began is going to be preposterous. Wow. Simple life in its simplest form is incredibly complex. That's why they, you can't come up with a plausible theory. It is that complex. Here's a quote. Now, I gave you a whole bunch of quotes today. There are many trees, we've said this before, there are many trees that have died to make this day possible for you. Let their life not be in vain. Um, we've got a whole bunch of quotes, and each of these quotes is just a starting point to more information. I would encourage you to take a look at this. And some of them are going to stretch you on one side or the other. Here's one of the quotes that are in your notes about the complexity of life and, and, and how hard it would be to make a living cell. He goes, a guy named Jonathan Wells, he's a, a PhD, he says this. He says, you can't make a living cell. There's not even a point in trying. 
It would be like a physicist doing an experiment to see if he can get a rock to fall upwards all the way to the moon. No biologist in his right mind would think that you can take a test tube with all those molecules and turn them into a cell. The problem of assembling all the right parts in the right way at the right time at the right place while keeping out the wrong material, it is simply insurmountable. Frankly, the idea that we're on the verge of explaining the origin of life naturalistically is just silly to me. All right, why am I telling you all this? Because this raises some questions about Darwin's theory. Am I saying Darwin didn't have merit to his theory? No, I'm saying there's questions. There's questions that should be raised. Because Darwin said this himself. This is a quote from Darwin's Origin of Species. It's, if it could be demonstrated, this is from Charles Darwin himself, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my entire theory would absolutely what? Break down. And it's worse than that because we're not talking about a complicated organ right now. We're talking about the building block of all life, the cells. And cells themselves are irreducibly complex or appear to be that way. Which is why people would say things like this, next quote, evolution should be taught as a scientific theory that is open to critical scrutiny, not as a sacred dogma that can't be questioned. And what happens is there's people that take the sacred dogma approach and they say you can't even question the reality. You're wasting our time if you even question this theory. And what will happen sometimes if you approach things dogmatically, you'll sometimes find evidence that isn't good evidence to support your theory. You'll be too quick to jump and follow a trail that appears to support what you want to say because it looks like it supports what you want to say instead of weighing the evidence itself. Let me give you uh, something to write your notes and let me give you an example of this. I'd encourage you to write this down. People often display the same non-scientific attitudes and behaviors that they accuse others of. I've had this happen to me a lot where people will say, no, all the evidence is on my side, but then they give me evidence that's not good evidence. Here's an example. I remember one time, it was 1999, I was prepping a youth group talk, and we were talking about how to, how to talk about creation and evolution without looking like an idiot, because I see a whole lot of people do that on both sides, right? And one of the things they do is they bring out their facts that aren't really facts, that they should have fact-checked first. And that year, National Geographic helped me out because they had this huge headline, huge headline about a fossil that they had just discovered. And they were so excited because this was a fossil of a missing link. National Geographic knew that those missing links were going to be out there, and here was an example of a missing link. It was a fossil that was the missing link between dinosaurs and birds. And someone had found this fossil, and someone else had given this fossil a scientific-sounding name. And then what they did is they got an artist to draw a picture of what this would have looked like in real life, behold, the fearsome Archaeoraptor. This is from, you can Google it. National Geographic, 19, 1999, Archaeoraptor. There it is. Now, so you're a person, right, seeking truth. Someone says, take a look at this. Here's some evidence. Looks pretty convincing. But do you know why it looked convincing? Do you know why it looked like the missing link between a dinosaur and a bird? Because someone took the tail of a dinosaur and they glued it to a fossil of a bird. And it was a fake. And National Geographic had to admit that they had been duped. And then 16 years later, 
National Geographic writes this, science warns us that we can what? We can deceive ourselves. Scientists rarely proclaim an absolute truth or absolute certainty. Uncertainty is inevitable at the frontiers of knowledge. When you get into a debate with somebody, if they're trying to use science with complete certainty, that should be a red flag right there because science needs to be humble because you're following the evidence. You're following the evidence rather than having this theory that at all costs you're going to find evidence to support. Now again, it might sound like I'm trying to put distance between myself and evolutionary theory here. That is not my point. I'm setting out this morning to make the point that you don't have to choose between science and scripture. It's not as simple as a choice between all of the facts are on one side and faith is on the other. Now, this reminder that I'm about to give you may help. There's a place to write this in your notes. Science and theology are two related but distinct disciplines. When you mess the two and you muddle the two up the wrong way, things can get really weird. Science and theology are two related but distinct disciplines. Are they related to one another? Absolutely. But you can go off the rails um, on either side when you forget that they're two distinct disciplines. How many of you have ever heard of God of the gaps before? The phrase God of the gaps. Okay. Here is God of the gaps thinking. God of the gaps thinking puts it all together. Science, theology, everything. You create a pie graph, like this beautiful pie graph that I have here on the, uh, up, up on this the whiteboard. You have a pie graph where you have all of this part of the pie is what science can under explain, right? But then you have a gap. You have the stuff that science can't yet explain. And what people will do is they'll say, that is what? That's God. God explains that. Well, there's all kinds of problems with this. One of the problems is what happens when science explains more and more and more about scientific stuff? Your God gets smaller and smaller and smaller. That's God of the gaps. That's the pie chart. Well, one of the things I love about John Walton's book is he says, let's change desserts. Let's change desserts. Instead of looking at all of this as a pie, as a one, all-in-one pie, what if we have a cake with two layers? What if we have a layer that's the scientific layer? And what if science focused on answering the questions that science answers? And what if you have another layer of theology that answers the questions that theology answers? Will there be some overlap? Yeah. But what if you focused on the questions that each of these disciplines is designed to answer? I mean, we've all seen this, right? Where a great theologian practices really bad science or when a great scientist practices really bad theology. When you do that, things get sketchy. And one of the areas where I've seen it on the creation side of things is the, the flood account with Noah. It's become a trump card for everything lately. I talk to people and they're like, why this thing that doesn't make sense in, in science? What was Noah's flood? That was the flood. That was the flood. And, and there's some really sketchy stuff that doesn't seem to match up with science that comes out of that. And on the other side, Dawkins does the same thing when he steps outside the discipline of science, and specifically with the flood. Dawkins just ripped on people, just ripped on people who believe in what the Scripture says about Noah and the flood. And he talks about how ridiculous that is. But then he offers a theory of his own. 
And you know, I'm not making this up. Again, I'm not making this up. His theory, he was talking about the Galapagos Islands. You know what his theory is of how tortoises got there, land tortoises? They floated there. They floated there. That's his theory. I'm not making that up. And since you have to have a, a tortoise that can multiply, a pregnant tortoise floated 600 miles from South America to the Galapagos Islands. Now, is that scientific? Well, let's say you get a million pregnant tortoises and you, you go to Ecuador at low tide and you put that tortoise on the ground. You can even give things a nudge, flip it upside down, give it a push of those million tortoises. How many of those tortoises are going to make it 600 miles across the ocean? Right? Man, PETA is going to be all up in your business because none of them are going to make it. So that's why you just have to be careful here. When, when you're operating in the realm of science, stick to the scientific method, right? When you're operating in the realm of theology, you need to ask, what, what are the scriptures really saying? Let's interpret them correctly. Otherwise, you just get into some pretty crazy stuff. Maybe the two disciplines address a separate set of questions. Here's a great quote. This is from a guy I really respect, Tim Keller. He's a pastor, scholar, philosopher, author. He writes this. He says, evolutionary science assumes that more complex life forms evolve from less complex forms through a process of natural selection. Many Christians believe that God brought about life this way. For example, Catholic Church, largest church in the world, has made official pronouncements supporting evolution as being compatible with Christian belief. However, Christians may believe in evolution as a process without believing in philosophical naturalism. The view that everything has a natural cause and that organic life is solely the product of random forces guided by no one. When evolution is turned into an all-encompassing theory explaining absolutely everything we believe, feel, and do as the product of natural selection, then we're not in the area of science. We're now in what? Philosophy. When we start using evolutionary theory to describe everything, purpose, intent, origins, now you've moved outside of science. You've moved into a different discipline that has a different set of rules. One of the things I love about this congregation is I'm really preaching to the choir here. Um, when it comes to these things, for the most part, I would imagine, having not talked to every one of you, I think we've got, we've got folks here, most of us, that we understand that we can embrace both science and sound theology, provided it's sound science and sound theology. There are questions that the discipline of science answers really, really, really well. And there are questions that the discipline of theology answers really, really, really well. All right, well, let's close with an example and a scripture. Let's say you hitch the ride on a floating tortoise and you find yourself on an island 600 miles off the coast of Ecuador. You wash up on the beach, you flip your tortoise over, you send her on her way. Well, after making Peter proud, you now continue down the beach and you come to Bob the Robot. All right, so you're on this beach, and you come to Bob the robot, and Bob can walk, and Bob can talk, and Bob can sing Taylor Swift songs. This is an amazing robot, and you're blown away by Bob. Well, then as you look around, you're not just blown away by Bob. 
Because you recognize there are robots everywhere you look. There's robots filling the skies in different shapes and sizes and forms. There's, there's, there's robots that are roaming the beach, roaming the hills, roaming the mountains. They're inland. They're on the coast. You've got, you got bobs, bo- little robots in the water taking on all kinds of shapes and forms. You have bobs that are so microscopic you can't even see them with your human eye, but they're there. You, and, and what really blows you away is they all seem to be related to one another. They need each other, in fact, to survive. You look at all of these things and you're just in wonder and you're in amazement. And you know what? If that happened to you, science could help you with a whole lot of questions. They could tell you how much the bobs weigh. They could tell you how each piece makes the other piece function. They could give you the schematics. They could give you the output of energy. Science could help you answer a whole lot of questions, a whole lot of questions. But you're also going to have questions that science can't answer. Now, let's say, for instance, that all of the bobs had a sign that said this. What does that sign say around Bob? New times! What times? 9.15 and 10.45, beginning when? September, uh, September 13th. We're doing the best we can, and I know there's going to be someone in this room who's going to be like, you never told us, never told us about the new times, right? Let's pretend that all of these robots everywhere had these signs around them, right? All of the robots everywhere had a message that they were trying to communicate. Now you're getting outside the realm of science because you're trying to interpret a message. You aren't rejecting science. Hear me clear. You're not rejecting science. You're simply now starting to ask questions that science isn't equipped to answer. You're starting to, you see the signs, you're you're starting to ask questions of intent and purpose and meaning. And these are questions that are simply outside the scope of science. Now, may I present to you a couple things. May I present to you that life is far more complex than robots. Far more complex than robots. Why do I say that? Because people can make robots. We can even make robots that make robots. I was just listening to the the radio the other day. They're talking about the self-driving cars. They say we're getting close to self-driving cars. That's amazing that people could come up with that. Why do I say robots are more complex than people? Why would I say that it would be a whole lot easier for a robot that makes robots to be created or or to evolve because we can't even come up with a plausible theory of how life began. All that stuff out there, all this stuff in here that fills the cosmos, how it happened. It's so complex. May I also present to you that the creator is sending a message through his creation. May I also present to you for your consideration that the creator is sending us a message through his creation. Now, if you would, please turn back with me to Psalm 19. Let's take a look at this. Psalm 19. I forgot to let you know, too, um, when I first opened up my Bible, that we have Bibles that we'd love to give to you today. If you don't have a Bible at home, we keep a stack each and every week at the tables near the entrance slash exits, and we'd love for you to take one home free of charge. All right, here we go. Psalm 19. Um, let me read verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to hit pause, and then we'll continue. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. All right, now the reason I'm hitting pause here is the psalmist is going to turn a corner here. The psalmist is about to turn a corner. After describing how creation testifies to its creator and how the sun, how the sun brings light to all, the scriptures go on now to describe the beauty and power of God's law. Psalm 19, the scriptures aren't testifying to some generic God where all paths lead to him. Do what you want. It's all going to work out in the end. Creation, the scriptures testify to a God whose ways are right, a God who is righteous, a God who is filled of love and justice, and a God who gets to set the definitions of what love and justice are. And this creation testifies to this God, and this God has a perfect law. In fact, if you have a subtitle to this section of Scripture. It probably says something like it does in my Bible. Mine says this whole section, Psalm 19, is the law of the Lord is perfect. This isn't just testifying, again, to some deity. This is really testifying to the law of this God being perfect. And, oh, I wish we had another hour to unpack this because there's so much here. there's, There's imagery that's pulled right from Genesis in this text. There's so much allusions to the law that was revealed through Moses. There's so much going on here. It's filled with vivid and powerful imagery. But for the sake of time, let me do something that I think is also strong, and that is to just read it. So let me just read uh, from Psalm 19.7. I'll go all the way uh, to the end here. It says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and the righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Does it take faith to embrace the theory of evolution? Yep. Does it take faith to embrace the message of our creator? Yeah. In fact, I encourage you to write this down. Christianity requires a step of faith, too. It requires you to take a step of faith to say there was a creator who's revealed himself through his creation. And with Christianity specifically, we believe he did more than just reveal himself through creation. He sent us his word, and he sent the word, his son Jesus Christ, into our world. 
I was so thankful uh, that Brandon took us from Genesis 1 to John chapter 1 last week. Let me quickly do that, and then we'll wrap up with prayer. It says this in Genesis chapter 1, and this is written about Jesus the Son, the one who was perfectly, the only one who ever lived a life perfectly aligned with God's law, and the one who died on the cross for our sins. It's written of him in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's our message that ultimately everything testifies to, that there's a God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him, would receive him, would not perish but have everlasting life. So let's pray to that end as we close today. Lord, I want to thank you for um, the respect that was shown um, in this room. Often when you bring these things up, it's so contentious that people will just start to shout each other down. And Lord, I'm so thankful um, for listening ears. And Lord, may I have listening ears as well. May we all set out to seek truth and not push an agenda. And we thank you that your truth has been revealed. It's been revealed in a creation that is filled with things that are fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, you've spoken to us through your written word, which was handed down through so many people, through so many centuries, and is filled with words that are fearfully and wonderfully presented. And most of all, we thank you that, that our faith isn't just based in a dogma or belief, but it's grounded in history. Because your son stepped into our world, and he really did die on a Roman cross for our sins, and there are witnesses who testify that he actually rose from the dead. So Lord, we thank you for all of this message that you put before us, and we pray, Lord, that we would respond to it, that you would help us to learn more and fresh each day what it means to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray for those who would want to know more, that they would open up those conversations with myself, with others, that we could be as helpful as possible in putting your word out there so that they could respond to it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you to come back next week. We're going to take on theories, plural, of evolution. Um, if you have some things you'd like to pray about, as always, you have people that would love to pray with you in the back of the room. God bless you. Have an awesome week.